Hey, my name is Nick. I'm, I'm honored that I'm able to open up God's word for us today. Um, it's always a privilege whenever I get to lead God's people into his word. Um, and if you are able, I'd love to invite you to stand so that we can read um, this passage. I'd love to read it to us. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be at, verses 14 to 29. This is the word of the Lord to us, and this is the, the passage that changed my life. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? And Jesus asked the boy's father, and he replied, Since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What, what do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out the evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. This is the word of the Lord to us today. You can be seated. Thank you. And I would actually invite us, would you just pray with me really quick before we jump, before we jump in? Lord, we just give you this time. We, we acknowledge that this that you need to speak, that, that God, you're the only one who is able to penetrate our hearts, to, to move us, to draw our hearts to you, to bring change, to, to, bring, uh, to bring faith. And so take my words, take this time, and would you use it? We give it to you. May it honor you. And might you change us through it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I remember, I remember where I was when this passage first started to grip my life. I was a 21-year-old um, Bible student at Moody Bible Institute. Um, I was in a federal building in downtown Chicago. I was a broke college student. Um, and I remember taking a one-day job to help with voting 
or I should say to, to be a, a, a backup helper for polling stations. And so the way that this worked was that I would end up going down to this federal building early, early morning on that Tuesday, and I would sit in this room. And if a polling station around the city needed help, they would call into the building and they would pick a number or they would draw a number. And they, you potentially could get sent out to help at the polling station. Well, that particular day, I never got called. And I sat in this building for eight hours, and I'm so glad that I had a Bible and I had a journal. Um, and, and I needed to prepare a Bible study for a talk I was giving the next day. And so this is the passage the Lord brought me to. I, was, I remember reading this passage and the Lord drawing me in. The Lord graciously speaking to my heart. While I'm there, 50 other people around, God and I were having this moment. And you see, in that moment, as a 21-year-old Bible student studying to become a, a pastor, leading a, a small youth ministry at a, at, a, at a church as a volunteer, being very new to teaching, being very new to leading, and having a lot of insecurities and doubts about myself. And now picture, in a Bible college where many people, uh, all of us really, were trying to, to, to see what God might do with us. And there's so many talented young people that were around me. And all of us were studying the Bible, talking about strategies, talking about ministry. That you can imagine what I might be tend, tend, or prone to do in those moments. And I would look around and would compare. And I'd go, man, I am not good enough. And I doubt, and I would try really hard to, to learn that new strategy or to be really smart or to be really articulate. And now, I will say, I had great intentions, and I did have sincere motives. I loved Jesus. I loved God's word. I, I did feel the Lord call me into ministry, and I did want God to use me. But how easy it is for us to lose sight of him. How easy it is for our eyes to shift from focusing on him to focusing on ourselves. And I sat there attempting to write a really good and powerful and memorable Bible study so that I could, and you fill in the blank, what's our motives? So that I can make an impact. That's true. But also so that I could, I could prove or show that I was good enough that I could cut it in this ministry world, in this, this, this time. But little did I know that in that process, sitting there in that room, God was grabbing me and he was teaching me about the main things and he was gonna teach me about belief and he was gonna teach me about prayer and he's gonna teach me about life. And, and this is the passage. And so if you have the passage open in front of you, Mark chapter nine, you, you know the verses 14 through 29, and we're going to dig in. But, but just to kind of give us the snapshot, as you read it, you can picture there's four different scenes in the story. And so the first scene, you see this crowd that's gathered. And, 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 and these disciples are returning. They find the crowd. And you see Jesus in the story come face to face with this desperate father. You see Jesus display his power. And he casts out a demon. And he heals a boy. And you see this last moment where the scene changes and it moves to Jesus alone with his disciples. And the disciples want to know what happened. 
And through the story, we're going to learn from the disciples, we're going to learn from the Father, we're going to learn from Jesus. But what we'll see, as one commentary writes, we'll see that at the heart of this exorcism story is not primarily a struggle with the demon, but it's primarily a struggle for faith. That's the core of it. And so, and so if you're jumping in, you jump into the first scene. A crowd is gathered. Verse 14, it begins. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them. And some teachers of, of religious law were arguing with them. So you can picture there's a large crowd. And in the center, there's the religious leaders arguing with some disciples. But the they in that verse is key. Who's the they? The they is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they were off together, they were on a mountain, and they were in this, in this previous scene. If you're looking at earlier in chapter 9, what you'll notice is that they're on the mountain with Jesus, and this is that transfiguration moment. This moment, and again, transfiguration is a churchy word for one of the most unique moments in Jesus' life on earth. Whereas they were on the mountain, Jesus, Jesus was transfigured before them. And verse, verse 2 of chapter 9 says this, says that, that Peter, James, and John, they got to watch as Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes, Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any, than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And they got to see Elijah and Moses also appear, not in hallucination, but appear in present time with them. And, he, and they begin talking with Jesus and the disciples just to get to be onlookers. And this is the scene. Before, that we, before this, this moment here with the, with the Father. And talk about drawing you in. I mean, I was just reading this and going, really? The disciples were able to see Jesus' glory in a way that they had never seen before. They were able to see the greatness of Christ. They were able to see the magnitude of his divine nature. It's almost like one of those moments where the curtain is kind of has rolled back, where supernatural intersects with the natural, and they get to be onlookers and see the reality, and they even get to hear the audible voice of God in this moment, where the Lord, the Father, says, this is my son whom I am well pleased, and listen to him. And this is the backdrop. And even just pausing there, I mean, why does the Lord give them that moment? Why does the Lord give us that moment as we read Scripture and we get a picture of that moment? Why does he do that? Because he's moving us. He's drawing us to believe. He's, he's saying, I want your faith to be driven down, to be so confident. I want you to be so in awe of me. I want you to be in, be, be in wonder of me that it moves you to go, you're real. I can trust you. But that's the backdrop. And Jesus and the three, they return to find the other nine disciples arguing with the religious leaders surrounded by the crowd. I mean, talk about a reentry. Talk about moving from mountaintop experience to, <laughs> to fighting with a demon, to fighting with the crowds, to seeing arguing. I mean, it's crazy how quickly life shifts. But the crowd see Jesus and they run to him in amazement. And, he, and Jesus is showing up at the perfect time. And and he asks them the question, what's all this arguing about? And, and, and this is when the father comes forward and shares about his son, and his son is possessed by an evil spirit. Now, evil spirits, demons, not something that we talk a whole lot about. But as we lean in, I just want to say a few things about it. This is where systematic theology is helpful, because as we lean into the story, there's a few things that we can and should hold in hand and the first is this, that there is a spiritual realm. 
there are invisible powers, angels and demons, which leads us to the second thing we hold in hand, which is that there's an enemy. We have an enemy. That this war, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. And, and, and then we hold also in hand the fact that the purpose of the enemy, the intention of the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy. And we see that here with the boy. It won't let him talk. It won't let him hear. It was controlling him. It was violent. And it would try to kill him. Now please hear this. As we, as we come to this topic and we come to a story like this, what this does is it reminds us that reality is more complex. It reminds us that there's more to the eye than what we can see. It, it's, now, it's not saying that every sickness is demonic. It's not saying that everything bad that happens is demonic, but it's indicating for us and reminding us that spiritual warfare is real and spiritual realities are just as present as natural ones, but we don't need to be afraid. Now we can go, why? Now we'll get there. Jesus has power over demons. There's this quote by C.S. Lewis that I, I think offers us some, some insight here. It's, it's from this amazing book he wrote called The Screwtape Letters, which is his beautiful kind of, kind of masterpiece around spiritual warfare. And he says this, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, people, can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their, one is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. So we either fall into this idea of like, we don't believe, I can't see, and honestly, I wonder if our world, our country, our, our culture is there a lot. But then there's this other side. And, and again, the enemy likes when we fall into both or to jump to both where we feel too, too much interested in them and looking around for them everywhere we go. And our enemy desires that we either disbelieve in their existence or to go to the other extreme and look for them everywhere, giving them more power than they really deserve. And I would just say here, it's wise for us to be aware. It's wise for us to be mindful, but we do not need to be afraid. Now, if you go to verse 18, if you pick back up where, we're, where we left off, so the father asks the disciples to cast out the demon. He brings the boy to them, but they could not do it. Now, put yourself in their shoes or, or their sandals, I guess. Put yourself in, the, in their mindset. Crowds are around, religious leaders are there, they try, they're not able to, and what are they feeling? Embarrassed, confused, insecure, and the religious, the religious leaders start, start in with their taunts. See, I told you so, you're just pretenders. You're not real religious people. And undoubtedly, the disciples are trying various ways to heal the boy. What are we doing wrong? And, and if you recall, Jesus had commissioned them, had sent them out, given them his power to go and to preach and to cast out demons and to heal. So what's going on now? Well, Jesus offers up our first clue because he says to those present, and I think he's talking to the disciples, to the father and to the religious leader, I think he says this, Jesus laments in verse 19. He says, he says, you faithless people, 
How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? And you see this raw moment by Jesus where you're given access to his heart. And and what's the key word in that verse? You faithless people. And he's lamenting their faithlessness. And he's saying, oh, people, I wish you would just know. I wish you would know who I am. And picture the transfiguration moment there. I wish you would know. I wish you'd believe and see all that I am. And Jesus is grieved and he feels the weight of being in a world that's default mode is unbelief. But he doesn't leave. He doesn't give up. He asks for the boy, which brings us to the next scene where you see Jesus engage more directly with a desperate father. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the father? Constant worry, constant care, many dark nights of the soul. He loves his son, would do anything for his son to protect him. And even as the boy is brought to him, the evil spirit sees Jesus and it throws him violently to the ground, probably just intensifying the father's desperation. But the father's desperation is met by Jesus' compassion. So while the disciples, the other nine, and the, and the, fair, and the religious leaders are arguing, Jesus steps in, he engages with the Father, he asks the question, he reorients the scene, he shows compassion. And the Father says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. Now I, I can picture myself saying, if you can. Um, it sounds kind, it sounds like he's trying to be polite, but you can see from the way Jesus fixes in on the if closet, there's more there. And, and I... And and he says, if you can, and I imagine that as the father has witnessed the last few moments from the the disciples' inability to to the disciples fighting to to the violence and the power of the demon, I can imagine the faith of the father that he, he came and he began with is waning. And he says, if you can. And I wonder if we can relate to that, that statement, that 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 heart where the events of your situation has, has gotten worse or that the length of time that you've been trying to hold on just seems to get longer and, and the faith that you once had seems to be growing weaker and, and we say, if, well, Jesus, help me if you can. But Jesus pushes back and he says, if I can, anything is possible if a person believes. And what Jesus is doing in that moment, he's challenging the Father to embrace or to remember or to understand who he's talking to. I can do anything. And so the question is not about whether I have the power to heal. The question is about whether you have the ability to believe. Anything is possible if a person believes. And he's telling us the key. The thread of this entire narrative is directing the emphasis there to that last word of verse 23. He's, point, he's, he's emphasized this is the key. Often with phrases like that one, right, we see verse 23, often with phrases like that, we hone in on the first word. Our ears perk up. Anything? Um, and yet the emphasis is on the last. That's where we have to start. 
And when your faith is placed on the true and right object, the, the sovereign and all-powerful and all-good God, because it's not just belief in anything. I mean, that's something the key to know. It's not just belief in anything. It has to be placed in the right and true object, which is God. But if our faith is placed in him and we start to think about who he is, then you can believe and trust that he's able to do anything because, because that's who he is. He, he, there's no limit to his power. And we can trust that if he wills, he can. And you see verse 23, what it does is it points our eyes to the object of our belief, to our faith. Who do we believe in? So the interpretation of verse 23 isn't that there are no limits to what I can accomplish if I believe. That's not the right interpretation. But the right interpretation is if I believe, there are no limits to what God can accomplish. The Lord asks us to believe But the reality is that faith implies me saying there's no limits to what God can do. And the father, in this moment, he instantly cries out and says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And this is the moment where we all go, oh, Lord, thank you for that verse. All God's people, we say amen, because, because if we're honest, this is our confession too. I do believe Help me with my unbelief. I do believe. But there are all these different areas, these different, these different moments, these gaps where I struggle to believe. And in this one man's beautiful and honest confession of uncertain faith and, and, and Jesus' reception of him, we're shown that it's okay to have imperfect faith. That the key here is that faith, faith doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be present. Faith doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be present. The reality is that all of us have areas of unbelief. Even as believers, our faith is far from perfect. And we struggle with weakness and we struggle with doubts. But the Father was honest and real. And the Lord wants us to be honest and real. And he gives us permission here for honesty. The focus, listen, is not on the magnitude or the perfection of your faith, but it's on its presence. So you come to Jesus and you say, I do believe, but it's weak. And Jesus looks at you and says, but, but do you believe? Yeah, I do. Good, because I'm strong. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll sustain you. I'll take it. Faith the size of a mustard seed, right? Isn't that what Jesus says? You bring faith. I'll, I'll do the rest. But do you cling to me? Do you believe in me? Listen, honest confession of need to the Lord is a beautiful cry of faith. Even you confessing your unbelief to the Lord is an honest cry of faith. And so we, we, we jump to the next scene where Jesus sees the crowds growing and he casts out the demon and he heals the boy. Verse 25 says that he rebukes the evil spirit and says, listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. And the demon screams, throws the boy into another convulsion and leaves him. And the boy lay on the ground and appears to be dead. And I imagine that you can hear a pin drop. Or maybe you hear like shrieks of terror. Who who knows? But but this is a pivotal moment where they're seeing the power of God on full display. And again, let me just say this passage, it does reveal the presence of an enemy. It does reveal the purpose and power of the enemy. 
but primarily this passage reveals the greater power of God. It reveals the greater power of God because you see him display the authority that that he has or even he commands demons and they have to obey. They must obey. And even though evil spirits have power, this passage is showing us they're limited. They have to submit to the Lord. And even even though demons and demonic and evil sports, their purpose is to destroy, for us as Christians, they're toothless. And ultimately, because of Christ's death and resurrection, what do we see? Satan has been defeated. Now you could ask, so why then doesn't God just put an end to them? Why does he just keep, keep them? Why do they keep moving and just... Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you should ask Pastor Chris about that question. Um, <laughs> no, and I would just say this. I would say it has something to do with his glory. It has something to do with his power. It has something to do with his patience, his plan, and our faith. We know the end of the story. But while we wait, we trust. Because we aren't always meant to know all the whys. But, and I love how this scene ends, this, this third scene has this other element where you see Jesus' character and kindness in it. Now, it's, this, it's a brief expression where you see Jesus grab the boy's hand, help him up, and he stands with him. And I, and I see his character and kindness in here because this could have been a scene where he kind of looks at all those around and says, see what I can do? See my power that you were fighting about? That's what the disciples and the religious were arguing about. See what I can do? And Jesus doesn't say anything. He cuts right through it. He reveals his heart of love and compassion and kindness. And he's just with them. He's just there. He sees the boy. And I wonder if some of us need that vision in our mind of just Jesus seeing the need, seeing the, the desperation, seeing the boy hurting and going, that's my focus. It's not about all this other stuff. But then the scene changes and it moves us to these last two verses. The final scene where the crowds have been dispersed and you see the disciples are alone with Jesus. And I would just say as a note that because Mark doesn't tell us about anything of the father's reaction or even the boy's reaction or the crowd's reaction, it moves us right to this scene. I believe that it shows us that this last two verses are the key. These last two verses are, is where it's all leading to this moment, to this lesson. And the disciples are alone with Jesus and they, they don't miss an opportunity to ask him, why couldn't we do it? And they say, hey, what happened? And I wonder, I wonder what they were thinking. Like, was the demon stronger? Was, was it a different kind of demon? Were we saying or doing it wrong? Are, are there limits to our power? And so they're having all these questions. And Jesus replies, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Or in other words, what he says is, you failed because you had not prayed. Which is curious, because Jesus did not stop and pray in the way that we often think of prayer. He doesn't stop and gather everybody around and say, let's lay hands on him and let's, let's, let's all do this. He just addresses the demon and he commands him to leave. And I think this is so key for us to notice and to talk about because it teaches us about prayer. And I think it also at the same time points us to where the disciples failed or what they missed. 
So now remember, track the threads of the story. Jesus laments, oh, faithless people. He says, anything is possible if a person believes. I do believe. And then he jumps to, and this kind can only come out by prayer. What he's doing is he's connecting prayer with faith, prayer with belief. Jesus isn't saying in this sentence, he isn't saying there's a certain kind of demon and oh man, they're tricky. And this kind can only come out by prayer. What he's saying is, he's saying, listen, I'm talking about evil spirits in general. I'm talking about any moment where you need the power of God, any moment where you, you're turning to me, that it can only be done by prayer. And the, the, the emphasis is on those three words. Only be done with faith. Listen, prayer is talking, it's listening to God. Prayer is conversation, but ultimately it's about relationship. Ultimately it's about, it's about more than just words. It's an expression of reliance and dependence and faith. One commentator wrote this, he said, since Jesus did not offer up a prayer to exercise the unclean spirit, the prayer that he has in mind is not some magical invocation, but a close and enduring relationship with God. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to me. And this is how Jesus lived. Prayerfully dependent on the Father. Prayer permeated his way of life. His heart and mind were steadfastly placed on the Father and his will. And this is what the disciples missed. Somewhere along the way, they, they, missed the, they lost sight of the main thing. Maybe they became too proud in their own effort or their own abilities or their past successes. Where they're looking at maybe, hey, look at, they lost sight of whose power it really was. Look what I can do. They were tempted to believe that the gift that they had received from Jesus was, was, their, was in their control or could be exercised at their disposal. Or maybe they thought it, that it came down to technique or the words. Bottom line, it was they no longer depended prayerfully on God for it. Now, I will just say, let me pause here briefly because there's a complexity in this passage and I just want to address it. This passage is not saying that those areas of your life that that you discern that God's not fixing or you have prayers that are going unanswered. This passage is not saying that that's because of your weak faith or because, because you weren't dependent enough or because you didn't pray. I know many of us are praying for things right now. And so, so here's another teaching on faith. Faith, on the one hand, we're, we're saying, Lord, there are no limits to your power. But at the same time, Lord, faith is submitting to your will. And if I feel like there's a gap between the two, this is where I come to you and I say, will you help me? Will you help sustain my faith, grow my faith, help me keep clinging to you in the midst of it? But it's both. And what Jesus is doing here, what Jesus is doing, he's, 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 he's attaching prayer to faith and it's reminding them He's inviting them to believe is what he's saying here. And he's, he's reminding them that their effectiveness only comes from him. It only comes through faith. And he, he's asking them, hey, remember that it's not about your ability. It's about your dependency. That's what this passage is about. If you're not depending on me, if you're not seeking me, it's not a, it, it, you're missing it. A dependent faith is one that prays and prays. <laughs> And not, and not only prayers before meals and bedtime, but a way of life that's permeated with prayerfulness, dependency on God, 
I love what someone wrote. He says, one cannot get ready for the moment by quickly uttering a special prayer. One has to be ready through a prayer for life when the moment comes. This is the way Jesus lived. He was prayed up in that moment when he walked up to the crowd. And this is our lesson. Constant dependency on him, knowing that it's his power, knowing that apart from him we can do nothing. And so as a 21-year-old, wanting to be successful, wanting to do great things for God, wanting to write this amazing Bible study in that moment, the Lord graciously challenged me not to miss the main thing. That while techniques, strategies, courage, even hard work, those things are good, they're not what the Lord requires. They're not the key. It's about your faith. It's about your dependence on God. It's about believing and depending. That's the bottom line today. It's about you realizing that if the Lord doesn't work, then all of this is in vain. And now as a 41-year-old pastor, the same principle applies. Are you depending on me? And it's not just for me, though. It's for you. Maybe you're a student or a teacher or an administrator heading back into school here. Maybe you have a giant presentation at work this week. Maybe you have a decision that you need to make. Maybe there's a hard conversation you need to have. What would it look like if you were to say, think about all that and just say, Lord, I need to depend on you for this. It changes the whole posture. It changes the whole way I think about it. I, I need you to lead me. I need you to bring the impact or the change. Or maybe as a parent or in your marriage or wherever you're at, in whatever season you're in. You know, we love to read books. We love to get techniques. We love to get formulas. We want to be successful in whatever ways. And the Lord could say, listen, if you're not depending on me, if, if, if my power and my pe- presence doesn't penetrate your kids or your marriage or your life, then, then what's going to end up doing is just being all in your own power. And that's, I don't want that. It's lacking. I want the Lord. So this passage 20 years ago helped me hear this gentle voice of Jesus to my soul saying that, believe. Depend on me. Yeah, your study is great, but if, if I don't go with you, if you don't bring me with you, if you're not depending on me, then it's just going to be, you're just going to get caught up in all your abilities. You're going to miss people right in front of you, and you're going to miss the power of God. This, te- this passage teaches us about faith and dependence. So my challenge for you and I, keep our heart close, eyes fixed on him, believe, depend on him, and watch. Just watch what God would do. That's what it's all about. And leave, we leave everything else to him. And what an unburdening that does for us. Just believe and depend and follow where he leads and love people along the way. Hey, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for reminders like this, passages like this that remind us that God, we don't want to miss it. We don't want to get stuck on our own pride or our own power or our own abilities, thinking that we need to bring the change. We need to do this. We need to fix it. But God, we, we, we ask for you, for your presence. We trust you. Would you be honored by our lives? Will you give us the, the faith that we need for this day, 
even if we're, we're holding on tight because, Father, we feel at the end, we trust that you will allow it not to break because you will hold us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.